Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good week. It has been a short week, depending on where you live in the world. But I know here in the United States it's uh, been a short week, I guess in large part because uh, many places uh, were closed uh, back on uh, Monday at the start of this week as we celebrated a Labor Day holiday. One thing I do find um, hard to believe is that tomorrow marks uh, the 20th anniversary of 9-11, or rather I should say of uh, September 11th, 2001. I know where I was uh, 20 years ago when um, that um, day um, for my generation would be a day that lived in infamy. Of course, when I hear of the phrase being a day that would live in infamy, I think of Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 1941, and that was my grandparents' 9-11. As for my parents, their 9-11, sadly, was when uh, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated from November 22nd, 1963. But I remember um, I was a senior in college, and I was uh, sitting down and having breakfast with some uh, friends of mine, and uh, one of my friends had um, said that uh, a plane had crashed into um, one of the World Trade Tower buildings. My first thought, and it probably was the same for a lot of other people, was that a prop plane had crashed into one of the towers as a result of the pilot having a heart attack or um, lost control of the plane to where he had nowhere else he could land it and lost control of it to the point where it just crashed into the tower. But it didn't take me long to eat breakfast um, as myself and my other classmates um, went on, went about our ways uh, to our classes. I got to my classroom and it was a political science class because after all that was my major. So um, I found out um, the TV was on because they were, um, the professor, uh, was wanting to know more about this uh, crash. And then all of a sudden, by the time I got there, at least a good 20 minutes after I'd had breakfast, that's when the second plane hit the uh, South Tower. And we all knew that this was no random accident, that this was an act of war and that America was under attack. I remember watching the towers um, crumble you know, it took 10 years for these towers to build. To be built. They, the foundation of the towers was first um, put into play back, I think, around 1966, and they were not fully, um, completely built. That is, from uh, bottom to top, uh, they were finished in a 10-year span, so we're looking at between sometime between 1975 and 1976. How ironic that my uh, maternal grandparents moved to uh, Massapequa, New York in 1966. Uh, my grandfather uh, got a job as a school superintendent for the Massapequa School District. And why I mention that is because when they moved to Massapequa, that would have been around the same time that the uh, trade towers were first um, getting ready to be built in terms of laying their foundation and having their foundations be laid. Um, so, yes, I basically it took 10 years for these towers to be built, but, but it only took 10 seconds for them to crumble. 
Almost 3,000 lives were lost that day. I mean, watching the horrors and then knowing that the Pentagon was a plane crashed into the Pentagon and then knowing that there was a fourth plane out there that had been hijacked and it ends up crashing into um, a field in, uh, in uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. My wife saw him a mater as Davis in Elkins College in Elkins, West Virginia, which is about three hours south of Pittsburgh. And she remembers that day well because um, they uh, closed the campus in fear that, for one, they weren't far from Pittsburgh, but two, where the direction that this plane was going, being the mystery plane that it could have um, come southward, uh, not far um, from Elkins, but enough of a concern where the campus was put on uh, heightened alert. We have uh, those brave um, men and women on United Flight 93 who, um, who saved our government. Well, what do you mean by saving their gov our government? That is the United States government. Well, w people know that the uh, Flight 93 was either heading towards the Capitol, uh, the White House. Sadly, the uh, passengers on the flights that crashed into the Trade Towers were uh, pepper sprayed. The same for those, uh, for, for the plane that crashed into the Pentagon. But what the hijackers didn't do was they didn't attack the passengers to where the passengers were knocked out. Uh, Todd Beamer was the one that came up with the phrase, well, he didn't come up with it, but he said it on the plane. We've got to find a way to fight the hijackers back, because if we don't, then they're going to win. And they've already achieved their victory by two means. They've taken out a financial institution. That was the heart of our economy, the United States economy. Uh, secondly, they've taken out a military uh, target that is vital for our nation's national security. What could be the third thing that's next? Well, the, the, the passengers didn't have time for it. They all decided on the theme, let's roll. Whatever it takes, we're going to fight the hijackers back. And they did. And they forced that plane to crash into uh, a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, saving countless other lives. If it hadn't been for those men, brave men and women who weren't even in uniform, they didn't have to be in uniforms just to be heroes. They were doing their job because they had their families to think about. They knew they probably weren't going to come home alive, but they had to think about everybody else whose lives were at stake. So, yes, there was a lot of tragedy on 9-11, but there also was a lot of heroism that day, too. And I'm very thankful that our uh, nation has not endured another terrorist attack like that. However, um, we as a nation, along with the rest of the world, still have to be very vigilant with what extremist organizations are um, capable of, of doing. About three years before um, September 11th, I remember when the bombings took place in East Africa around um, Kenya and Tanzania. In the aftermath of the bombing, a reporter interviewed Osama bin Laden. He said to him, you know, you didn't kill just 12 Americans. You killed countless numbers of uh, people of the Muslim faith. And what do you have to say about that? Osama bin Laden's response was, it's Allah's will. In other words, if you're a Muslim and you are willing to tolerate Western civilization, then you'll die the same, the same death as an American would. So 
that's the kind of extremism we're still facing in uh, today's unstable world. But let's not forget uh, what happened 20 years ago, because um, although it seems like a long time ago, it, it, it's not. Uh, I realized that when that the events of 9-11 uh, changed life forever. To think there was a time when you could go to the airport and uh, meet a family member coming off the plane at the, um, at the gate. Maybe not outside, but inside. Or there was a time when you could, you know, if you weren't on the flight, but you could um, wait with your uh, loved one until he or she got on the plane. Those days are long. Those days probably will never come back. They haven't come back since 9-11, but we must remember about all the innocence that, with regards to a lot of the things that we were able to do before um, the horrific events of September 11th, 2001 took place. So this is an example of where innocence was um, taken. And whenever uh, tragic events like Pearl Harbor happened, uh, the Kennedy assassination to 9-11, each generation loses a sense of innocence. However, um, I don't know. You know, innocence is one of those things that... Um, that, that we can't take for granted. Uh, I'm very thankful I grew up in a time years ago when I was much younger where there was a lot more innocence. Yes, there were issues in the world, but uh, but it just seemed like there was a lot more innocence. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, today's world is one that's full of uncertainty. And I try not to be negative about it, but it is something that, that is a reality. Uh, however, we have to find ways to... Um, keep smiles on our faces. We have to go on with life. And that's why I find podcasting so important because it is one of those things that uh, takes a lot of um, worries off my chest. There are other things that take worries off my chest too, such as visiting historic places, traveling, going to wineries, being with friends. So if you know of things that bring joy in your life, be consistent with it. That's the key there. So anyways, um, that's my little tribute to you all, regardless of whether you live in the United States or elsewhere around the world with regards to 9-11, considering that tomorrow marks uh, the 20th anniversary. So let's never forget that day. But here we are discussing uh, the War of 1812 once again. That is the War of 1812 in Wisconsin, the Battle for Prairie du Chêne by Mary Elise Antoine. Uh, this podcast session, we're going to uh, touch up on some um, on some unique uh, comings. I mean, we've already established that war has broken out. So far, the war hasn't started off well for the Americans. We've lost Fort Mackinac and Fort Detroit. And there's a lot of momentum on the side of uh, the British and their Indian allies in the Western Great Lakes, including a handful from the upper Mississippi, but most notably along the Western Great Lakes. And when I was on the air again uh, the previous night, we, uh, we had discussed about how Robert Dixon had held a uh, council meeting in uh, what we now know as present-day Chicago, Illinois. So our first lead-off question for this ep podcast episode will be the following. Did Robert Dixon's council meeting in Chicago yield anything relevant? Well, of course, when we think of uh, meetings in today's time, we think of um, 
someone driving to a facility, you know, they're driving in their car, they have more than likely you would think they'd have a coat and tie on, a fancy rather coat, fancy coat, shirt and tie on. Um, however, not all meetings have to be in person. There are a lot of meetings in today's time where you can do um, conference uh, calls, Skype. But obviously, none of that existed in the 18th century. And obviously, there was no technology for Skype or, um, or what do you call it, a, a, a three-way um, conference uh, call by phone. But nonetheless, Robert Dixon did hold a council meeting in what we now know as present-day Chicago, Illinois. And yes, it did yield um, some uh, very relevant uh, things. Uh, for starters, many Englishmen, a.k.a. Uh, British traders and agents had successfully garnered large numbers of Indian peoples, or rather Indian peoples amongst the um, the multiple number of tribes, whom uh, had remained loyal to England for some time, and uh, and those tribes uh, we call it um, took up what we might say is um, they uh, reclaimed their oath of allegiance by letting uh, the British traders know that, okay, times have changed, we're now at a time of war, we're still going to be on your side. That's a good thing right there, but it's one thing also to have allegiance, or allegiances, but are allegiances also essential in defense preparations? Sure. You know, it's one thing to have a, an alliance, but if an alliance is going to coexist, or exist, you've got to make sure that you have all the necessary defense preparations to ensure that any military forts on your side, whether you took them from the enemy or they were forts of your own that you built from bottom to top, will remain in your will remain in your possession, not just for um, short-term purposes but long-term. But could the um, preparation of forts? Also help ensure uh, trading relations. If you're uh, on the British side, that is uh, trading relations with the Indians. Sure, because the defense forts are more than just for military purposes. That we've already established that many of that some of these forts were uh, seen as trading posts. Okay, you got your military stuff there, but you also can have. Um, places within the fort where you can store other supplies uh, that are essential uh, for trading uh, purposes. So think of a fort as um, a multi-dimensional uh, facility where it's more than just uh, storing military supplies. You know, Robert Dixon is one of those fellows who... Um, who doesn't miss out on anything. He um, He's at the... Um, He's not, he doesn't want to see himself as a center of attention, but he's really one of those figures who is um, one of the leading um, figures who um, is at the focal point of a lot of things. And what I mean by focal point is that he's at the center. You know, no matter um, what the matter might be, he's got a stake in it. And he's got to have a stake in it because whatever actions or decisions um if one decision benefits a particular Indian tribe or a group of Indian tribes, will they impact the other tribes? And if they don't, then how can Robert Dixon go about um, mending whatever issues exist amongst the Indians whom 
felt they were excluded or didn't benefit versus the other Indians whom were already a step ahead. So Robert Dixon arrives back at Prairie du Chen on April the 17th, 1813. Despite many council meetings with Indians, including a good outlook on Indian relations long term, Robert Dixon does come across men uh, within the um, British Indian agent system. Not just the Indian agent system, but they also um, have ties with uh, the British military. These are men like Michael uh, Brisbois to Francis Deese. The, both of these men warn, John, warn Robert Dixon about the overall state of current nation's situation. Why do you think these two men would want to warn um, Robert Dixon? Well, they're warning him for the right reasons. They know that the British have a lot of momentum on their side. But we also should keep in mind that momentum itself is one of those things that doesn't last forever. You can have all the momentum you want today, but what about tomorrow? Or what about a month from now? That momentum, if you're not careful, can be taken away. And it doesn't always have to necessarily mean a battle with the enemy. The momentum, the, the shift in momentum or the, um, or the loss of um, momentum can happen from within your organization. So momentum itself is one of those fragile uh, elements that, um, that is tangible, meaning that it's subject to change. And it's up to you to be able to, to either stay on the offense or stay on the defense but whatever decision you make, you've got to make sure that, um, that the momentum you have today will still be there tomorrow. So for basically for men like Michael Brisbois and to Francis Dees, their bigger, their, the biggest concerns they have are the overall outlook, or what we call the overall long-term uh, health of the uh, relations with the Indian tribes. Because right now, even as in the aftermath of war having broken out, as we mentioned from the previous podcast, the Indians, um, there are more Indians coming to the uh, trading posts to trade, but yet the supplies are not there. So if the supplies are not there, that means that there's going to be, um, you know, not only just more people showing up, but if not enough supplies are met to where not everyone gets a, um, gets a share in what's um, being uh, distributed, there could be internal conflict, not just among, amongst members of one tribe, but amongst members of, of the greater Indian community as a whole. So this is where momentum and even peace itself is very fragile. So, and, and we did learn uh, from the previous podcast too about Nicholas Balvin's letter that he sent, thinking that he had sent it to the right people whom sided, who were going to side with the Americans. Well, we learned that that wasn't the case, and that the letters alarmed the entire Indian nations or Indian nations along the Great Western Great Lakes, and alarmed uh, British officials too. So, Nicholas Balvin's uh, letter incident basically forced has forced Robert Dixon into the realization about improving Prairie du Chen's defense. You know, for Dixon, I think it's fair to say he thought everything was good, and it is still good, considering that um, that the British do have the upper hand 
in the aftermath of war start, but it doesn't mean that you can celebrate left and right like there's no tomorrow. Did any moments of tension take place after Robert Dixon returned to Prairie du Chien? Yes. Well, what kind of um, tension took place? Did it take place amongst the Indians from within, or did it take place amongst Indians and British military personnel? The answer is choice B. It took place between um, the Indians and uh, the British military, British military personnel. Uh, there was a, a situation where an individual um, Indian, uh, his name wasn't mentioned, but he was a part of the Sioux Nation. He killed a calf. Of course, we all know what a calf is, a baby cow. It belonged to a British officer. The British officer got so upset that he threatened to kill this Indian but the attack got thwarted by another British officer who broke up the melee. Could it have been that perhaps this uh, Sioux Indian individual killed the calf out of hunger? Yes. He didn't kill the calf for attention purposes. He didn't kill it for glorification. You know, winter is a harsh, um, it's a harsh season. However, because of uh, shortage, because of supply shortages, and it's not confined to just supplies that are non-food related items. Uh, supplies also are food as well. Given that uh, many, if not all, Indian nations are struggling to survive by means of food, it's going to mean doing things that to some people are unbecoming. It's going to mean doing some things that um, don't always involve uh, getting direct consent from another party. And when, when you get desperate, in the case of the Sioux Indian, you are going to do things that, yes, will surprise the other party. So, could this be an early sign of what would eventually become maybe the undoing of a long-term alliance? I don't know. Uh, of course, we've got to find that out, but it's always possible that even the pettiest of incidents that occur between alliances over time can lead to something drastic to where a potential fallout could happen. But thank heavens this other British officer um, broke up the melee to where um, no one was uh, killed, uh, to where hopefully some resolution was um attained out of this, but nonetheless, um, it, just, it just doesn't look good. Here's something that um, I'm going to point out to you all. Uh, I found it kind of interesting. You know, well, for starters, the Indians, regardless of the region they lived in, they had their own language. They had their own um, symbols for what they interpreted. You know, for example, they did, many Indian tribes had their own uh, symbols for what constituted a white person. They had their own symbols for what constituted uh, peace. Uh, what their, they had symbols for what constituted going to war with another Indian tribe. So, you know, the Indians, uh, they had their own gods. Of course, the Europeans only believe in one god. 
course, one of the big missions of the Europeans when they came over to the New World, most notably uh, the, French, the English and the Spanish, was to convert as many Indian nations into Christianity, that is, believing in one God. But uh, for the Dakota Sioux, or per, rather I should say per the Dakota Sioux tradition, their people called the War of 1812 the following, and it is a bit of a tongue twister, so I'm going to pronounce it as best as I can. So um, if, I, if I get it right to the best of my ability, um, then at least I know I tried without, without not making any excuses. So here we go. Pahin Shashwikia. That's a tongue twister, all right. But I would say it's better than not having tried pronouncing it at all. But the term Pahin Shashwakia means the following. When the redhead begged for our help. That's a strong um, phrase right there. When the redhead begged for our help. Do you think that the uh, that the Dakota Sioux were uh, referring to someone of uh, European importance? Could it have been a European uh, a person who, yes, was a European? But do you think they could be referring to a uh, European man whom has been a part of their uh, culture for some time? Yes, it turns out that the redhead was none other than Mr. Robert Dixon. That's how um, strong their, uh, the, for example, the Dakota Sioux had of a relationship with Mr. Robert Dixon. To us, when the redhead begged for our help, that would mean that the um, redhead maybe didn't do enough on his end before having to come to the Indians for help. But you know what? This uh, phrase could be seeing could be seeing a uh, different interpretation now, especially that war has broken out, and knowing that there's a lot of uncertainty, because we did a, we did address about the uncertainty from the previous podcast. Uh, given the large numbers of Indian nations, or rather Indian tribes, having teamed up with Robert Dixon, what enormous hurdle did upper-level British military leadership face? Enormous hurdle. You know, I thought, you know, the Indians and the British had it all made pretty good since the momentum has been riding so high for them. But even when you have all the momentum you want, you still have a hurdle or two, no matter how big or small it might be, to deal with. Does anybody want to take a guess at what this enormous hurdle could have been? Did it have anything to do for example, with um, food supplies. It sure did. So the answer revolves around providing adequate food supplies to all Indians participating in the war cause. We're not talking about 200 or 300 Indians, folks. We are talking well over 600. We might not even have a thousand just yet, but it's probably fair to say that as at this point in the state, at this point in the uh, game of war, we have about 800 Indians whom have um, taken their allegiances with England going into war against America. And not all 800 Indians belong to one tribe. A number of them could, could be with the Dakota Sioux, a number of them could be with the Menominee, uh, a, num a number of them could be um, with the um, 
Chippewa, um, a number of, I mean, there are so many of the uh, Indian uh, tribes along the Western Great Lakes that we could have probably anywhere between eight or ten Indian tribes or more that make up the 800 people at best whom, uh, whom have uh, taken up arms to go to war against the United States. But the issue itself, or rather the issues over food supplies brought upon by Indian individuals, this, the issue itself, it wasn't that the Indians folks weren't lazy and didn't want to do their part. That's not the issue. It's the fact that many of the Indian individuals, meaning the chiefs or the um, men just below the rank of chief, had brought their extended families along. And it's, they didn't bring them along for joyride purposes, folks. They brought them along in fear, knowing that if they were left behind, that they might not um, survive. And it's one thing to die, but would you rather die as a family together intact, or would you rather die by yourself knowing that the enemy took, took whatever was left of your family and killed them? I think for many of these Indians, Indian individuals, whom had already signed pledges to go to war, they knew that they needed to bring their families with them in order to ensure um, security, short and long term. So it's one thing now for, the, for Indian individuals to go about bringing their extended families, but the more Indians there are in camp, the more Indians there are in camp, means that the greater the uh, deficit there is with regards to the overall, the current existing overall amount of food rations, or rather we should say uh, supplies. So think about this. If you've got uh, maybe not all 800 Indians in one camp, folks, but the more Indians there are in each camp, it's going to be harder for uh, British military leadership not only to garner the supplies that the Indians along with the British military themselves need to, um, to survive not only just winter, but how about everyday um, essentials, like just being able to eat? You know, think about it, folks. We don't have grocery stores at this time. So, you know, you, you've got to go out and hunt the food, but you've also got to make sure that by, after you've hunted the food that, you know, you cook it, and, but you've got to make sure that there's enough food to be evenly distributed to amongst all the Indians so that uh, no one gets into a fight over who had more food over the other. Um, what siege uh, took place from uh, late April to early May of 1813? I'll give you a hint. Um, this siege uh, didn't take place in Canada, but the siege itself... Um, did take place in Ohio. The siege was known as the Siege of Fort Meigs, which is located in present-day Perrysburg, Ohio, along the Maumee River. Most of you all probably have never heard of the Maumee River, but there is a place in Ohio called Maumee, Ohio. That's spelled M-A-U-M-E-E. And um, for those of you who uh, want to know exactly where uh, Fort Meigs is located in Ohio, it's um, located in the northwestern part of the state. 
Northwest Ohio borders what state, folks? Does it border um, Does it border uh, Michigan, or does it um, or or does it border uh, Indiana? Well, it, uh, Northwest Ohio actually borders uh, more of uh, Michigan. What city in Northwest Ohio? It's not. It's not like the size of Chicago, Illinois. But do any of you all know what city in Northwest Ohio is closer to Detroit, Michigan? Is it Cleveland or is it Toledo? Well, the answer is Toledo. And the reason why it's not Cleveland, folks, is because Cleveland is east of Toledo. Cleveland is closer to Erie, Pennsylvania. So Toledo, Ohio is uh, in Northwest Ohio, and it borders, uh, and it's not far from Detroit, Michigan. So Fort Meigs is on the outskirts of uh, Toledo. And the, and the fort itself uh, served as a uh, supply depot for uh, the U.S. military operations in Canada. Well, Toledo is located on Lake Erie, and Lake Erie, there is, uh, Lake Erie also does border uh, Canada. As a matter of fact, uh, Detroit, Detroit and Toledo are both right on Lake Erie. There were two sieges that took place at Fort Meigs. Um, the second attempt, though, by the British and their Indian forces uh, failed in large part due to inclement weather, but also because of how well fortified Fort Meigs stood out. It was one of those forts that no matter um, how um, no matter how far the English went in terms of trying to bombard the fort with cannons, the ramparts, or rather I should say the, uh, the walls themselves around the fort, were so built to where it, they could withstand any kind of cannon shot being fired, to where the fort itself did not sustain any major damages that would have allowed the enemy and the British to advance onto the fort to where they could have uh, pretty much um, gotten access to it to where um, they would have been able to have uh, gotten the Americans to have surrendered. So, so basically, um, yes, the, the fortification behind Fort Meigs was very significant, but this defeat at Fort Meigs led to more rift and tension between the Indian nations and British military officers. This is a huge setback, and it is fair to say that even history has proven that some battles were decided all because of the weather, or some battles did not um, play out like they did because of weather. So weather itself often can dictate who can emerge away as a victor and who can escape to where they have more time on their side before the inevitable happens. And what I mean by inevitable, meaning annihilation, complete surrender. Basically, the enemy, regardless of who the enemy is, if the weather works to their advantage, they might be able to live to see another day to fight their opponent. What's significant? What significant battle along the Great Lakes water along Great Lakes waters took place in September of 1813? How about the Battle of Lake Erie around Putten Bay, Ohio, about uh, which is located about 30 miles uh, east of Toledo? It's interesting, Putten Bay, Ohio. 
The U.S. Navy was led by a commander named Oliver Hazard Perry. And Perrysburg, Ohio, folks, is named after um, Commander Oliver Perry. He went about capturing six British Royal Navy vessels. But most importantly, the American victory at Lake Erie secured entire control of, of all Lake Erie throughout the remainder of war, along with recovering Detroit. You know, when uh, Fort Detroit fell into uh, the British and Indian hands, the British had it. But now that we have defeated the British on Lake Erie, we have been able to reclaim a fort that had once belonged to uh, the British. Is it fair to say that the Americans have turned the tide along the western frontier? Yes, we have turned the tide. As a matter of fact, our naval victories were the ones that kept the, um, the War of 1812 afloat in the early years of this war. Matter of fact, there's one ship along the seas that has uh, defeated numerous British ships. Her name is the USS Constitution, a.k.a. Old Ironsides. She's the one that's um, scoring a lot of victories. And then, of course, with Oliver Perry's victories along the high seas, it just makes um, an even better um, feeling knowing that, hey, the Americans now have something really good to feel about, including um, holding their ground at Fort Meigs. But the British defeat at Lake Erie forced British troops under Major General Henry Proctor to retreat northward along the Thames River into Moravian Town. And this is now into Canada, folks. Um, so they basically have had to go. Um, they've left Lake Erie on the United States side. And now they've been forced into retreat into northward into uh, Canada. However, William Henry Harrison knows that he's got to go on the offensive. He can't let the um, British regroup. So General Henry Proctor goes into uh, Moravian Town, and he is joined by uh, Tecumseh's followers. Remember who Tecumseh was, folks? He was the uh, the leader of the Shawnee Nation. He was seen as uh, the chosen one amongst the other Indians, not just amongst the other Indians as individuals, but other Indian uh, tribal civilizations as the one that could help unite all the Indian nations along the frontier and keeping out uh, white settlers from encroaching upon their lands. It was at the Battle of um, Moravian Town, along the Thames River, where General William H Henry Harrison scored a huge victory, where he and his forces not only defeated uh, General Henry Proctor, but they also were responsible for decimating Tecumseh's forces which also include the included the death of Tecumseh himself. Two things here, folks. The American victory here along um, in Moravian Town led the United States to have complete control over the Northwest frontier, but most importantly, the death of Tecumseh led to the breakup of an Indian alliance he had created just a few years earlier. You know, when a leader dies, you often ask yourself who's going to take his place. But now that Tecumseh's gone, many Indian nations are now wondering 
as our dream itself for a for a um, large territorial haven free of white settlers is that now in jeopardy which island in robert dixon's mindset was most vulnerable to attack from the americans was it prairie du chen or michelamackinac it was michelamackinac how so well a lot of it has to do with the U.S. victories that occurred at Lake Erie, including um, along the, Tem the Thames River at Moravian Town. So, we now move to the winter of 1814. This period of time is going to be a very, very trying time for Robert Dixon. Not only is he dealing with shortage of provisions to Indians, he's also facing hunger... He's, He's seeing um, the Indians endure hunger situations. And it's bad enough that you're struggling to survive because you need food to nourish you. But when you're facing a shortage of food, is it fair to say that tribes or just people themselves can engage in conflicts amongst one another? Of course, when I think of uh, a, a terrible situation that happened in the winter... I often think of the horrific situation that happened at Jamestown, Virginia during the starving time of the winter from 1609 to 1610. And pretty much uh, those whom were still alive, you know, settlers um, in Jamestown, the Indians had pretty much cut off all uh, trading, that is, ex food exchanging, because the Indians needed the food for themselves in order to survive the winter. But the, um, the English people had nothing. And it was that bad, folks. And I'm not here to scare you all, but this is something that uh, can't be ignored. Historians know that many uh, English people uh, resorted to eating cats, dogs. They even know that they resorted to eating snakes. Um, boots, folks. Boots, even leather. It got so bad where people turned on each other. One man even murdered his pregnant wife because he was so hungry. Of course, that man was found guilty of cannibalism and hung. But what we must realize, folks, is that in, in trying times where food is a shortage, history has shown to us that people have, that humans have turned on each other. I'm not here to gross you all out, but it is a reality that should not be uh, forgotten. Not everyone in the world has access to food. And we still see that even in today's um, world. There are many places in the world where people would give anything in the world to have um, fundamental essentials, including a necessary amount of food, like places, like countries such as the United States and other European nations have access to. So the Indians are uh, facing a huge uh, hunger situation where uh, Indian tribes have engaged in, conflict, in conflicts amongst one another. For example, the Sioux Indians uh, went about attacking to killing Chippewa Indians along the Mississippi. A British officer named Joseph Rollette was accused of selling flour to Indians at unreasonable prices, or rather I should say ridiculous prices. Then the people of Prairie du Chen 
were at odds with the Winnebago. It's fair to say, folks, that nobody is really happy right now this time. They're not happy because they don't want to be happy. It's because there is a shortage of essential supplies and food to where without enough, um, without enough of a surplus of these goods and fundamental necessities, people are going to do things that are unbecoming. And that's what happens when war itself breaks out. No matter how big or small the scale of war is, there will be um, things that people engage in which lead them to do things that are unbecoming. Is it fair to say that Robert Dixon dealt with many tribal factions throughout the winter of 1814? That's a no-brainer right there. Some tribal factions led Dixon to question their true loyalties. That is, are these tribes really loyal to England based upon the way they're acting? There was one situation where about six Potawatomi Indian members came to Dixon in need of assistance. Robert Dixon really wasn't sure what their true intent was because he thought maybe they were there as a means of testing the waters, working undercover for the Americans, trying to obtain intelligence to where if they got the intelligence, it could be um, used to the Potawatomi, their advantage, only to um, launch a surprise attack on the, uh, on the uh, prairie, a.k.a. Prairie du Chen. So Robert Dixon went about giving um, these six Potawatomi Indian individuals clothing as a means of deterring them from not returning again. In other words, okay, I'm going to help you out here. But it's the last time I ask that you come along this territory, because if you keep coming back, I'm going to know that you basically are a red flag. Just how sacred was Michilimackinac to the British military leaders? Well, uh, Mary Elise Antoine, in, the, in her book here, has described Michilimackinac in the eyes of the British officials, that is, British military officials, they saw it in their eyes as, and this is in quotes, uh, the life and soul. That's what's in quotes, the life and soul of the Northwest. It's fair to say that where Michilimackinac was located impacted trade from as far south as Louisiana all the way west to the Pacific Ocean. Michilimackinac was seen as a strategical point where alliances were vital, not only amongst the Indian nations from within, but also for European powers like Britain. Given that so many of these Indian nations along the western frontier have um, affiliated themselves with Britain, or aligned themselves with Britain, that Britain herself can uh, dictate where the trade goes. Without Britain's uh, superiority, then who's to say where the trade goes? Well, when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to uh, discuss about William Clark and his expedition to Prairie du Chien. You know, I think it's fair to say that all the podcast series I've done have had their twists and turns, but they've had their twists and turns for all the right reasons. In order to tell the stories right, there has to be rocks in the road, there has to be, there has to be setbacks, there, has, there have to be hurdles. 
without any of those um, obstacles, then how can the stories themselves really hold any true relevant meaning? On one hand, that might be seen to some as a good thing. On the other hand, I'm not sure what others would see in terms of the opposite. But what I do know is that at, at the end of the podcast, or at the end of all my podcast episodes, knowing how many plays I get, I know that all of you are benefiting in some form or another. And as I've said before, and I'd say it again, my mission is to teach all of you what I've read that's not only relevant, but come away with a better appreciation for history itself. You know, we live in a world where there's so much negativity. We live in a world where, not to get political folks, but it does happen where people's, where a lot of people out there tend to get their feelings hurt easily to where they don't want resolution. Well, of course, it all might depend on the matter itself, but they would rather... Um, they would rather not sit down and take the time and learn about the past. They want to fix, they want a quick resolution. And oftentimes that quick resolution isn't the right way to go about learning more about the past. So my advice to you all is to continue to um, listen to the podcasts that I provide because for one, they're relevant. And two, it's not about, it's not about um, politics because I, I don't want to get into that. But three, I want us to be able to keep the flame alive so that future generations will be able to listen to these podcasts and know that, hey, there was someone out there who really did care about wanting to learn more about the events that happened in the time they took place and why they, why they still matter today in the unstable 21st century. Well, anyways, uh, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again. And thank you again for just being ardent listeners ardent followers and continue to spread the word to those whom would like to uh, be a part of this uh, movement because after 10,200 some odd plays I know that um, I've made a difference and I hope to continue to be able to do that I have no doubts that I will but thank you again just for listening and uh, taking an interest in um, so much uh, history out there that hasn't been necessarily told to the fullest uh, extent, but um, but I'm glad to be able to uh, pick up the pieces where, um, where it um, ended at. Thank you again, and uh, have a good uh, weekend wherever you all live in the world. Take care and uh, stay safe.